I'm Christina Rea, and welcome back to Breaking Out of Breaking In, a practical filmmaking podcast about taking your creative career into your own hands and making great work that gets seen without playing the Hollywood game. Or at least while changing the rules. Hey, I'm Brie Castellini, your other co-host, and today we're talking about representation, not getting an agent, but the diversity and inclusion of voices on and off screen. If you'd like to suggest an upcoming topic, send us a compliment, ask a question, or otherwise get in touch, you can hit us up on Twitter or Instagram at breakingoutpod or via email breakingoutofbreakinginpod at gmail.com. But first, we've got another set of pipes for you to enjoy today. Danny, say hello. Hi, everyone. Hi, Brie. Hi, Christina. Hey, Danny. Tell us a little bit about who you are in your personhood as well as in your work. Perfect. I am an actor. I am a singer-songwriter. I have recently been doing a good amount of film work with Christina Rea, co-host of this podcast. Uh, So I do work with Congested Cat Productions. I am one of the co-hosts of IndieWorks, which is a monthly uh, independent film screening, which I miss very much during these times. And uh, I also do social media as well, as you both know. And that's how you pay your bills, right? We like to ask people. Yes. So this week we are talking uh, not certainly in a definitive way about representation, what it means to us, what it means when we make work, what it means when we consume work. Uh, This will certainly not be the end of our conversation about this. We will likely have many episodes about the issues of representation and all of the sort of things that go into that over the course of this podcast. But we wanted to have at least an episode early on kind of unpacking our own personal whatever with it you know our personal connection with it on either side yeah our journeys let's keep going back to the word journey (laughs) journey is a good one um so i wanted to ask both of you when was the first time that you saw yourself on screen slash in media what kind of experience did you have danny i was just gonna ask you if you want to go first christina i can sure So I didn't see many brown people growing up on TV or movies. Honestly, the very first thing that comes to mind is not even a perfect portrayal, but it's Jasmine in Aladdin (laughs) because it was the first time I saw anyone who kind of looked like me. For context for people who don't know what I look like and my ethnic background, my mom is is West Indian or Indo-Trinidadian. She was born in Trinidad of Indian descent. And uh, my father's Italian, but I didn't grow up with my father's side. And so I really just had my mom's family. And that's what I, that's what I like associated myself with, though I definitely had lighter skin. And that's just a reality of also like not seeing myself because there's the nuances of being mixed and, and that wasn't anywhere. But Jasmine is a character who is not supposed to be Indian, but she like dressed the way that I saw that I dressed, you know, going to like temple or going to uh, a celebration, a Hindu celebration or Indian celebration. And so I just loved Jasmine. And I was probably like six when I, six or seven. So you're experiencing her was just like, you just fell in love. Like she was your girl. Yeah, I was her for Halloween. I think that year that that I first saw the movie. Were you conscious of it being like, oh, this is the first time I've seen this kind of a character? Do you think it was subliminal? Like how how conscious were you at six? I don't think I was 
very conscious at that point. I definitely knew that I was craving something. I was drawn to content with black stars, like TGIF programming where there was like sister sister and hanging with Mr. Cooper, but there wasn't much diversity even within that. And I was definitely craving seeing representation. So Danny, what about you? Yeah, so similarly to Christina, I come from a mixed background. My dad is black, my mom is half Armenian, and then the rest is like everything white. Sure, sure. Uh, And so I also grew up uh, with my mom being a single mom my whole life, and we lived with my grandparents. um, So her mom, her white mom, and her Armenian dad Mm -hmm. uh, for a lot of our lives. And so for me, I sort of saw my life through a very white lens, but I always knew that something was different about me. I don't even remember ever having a conversation with my mom about being mixed or about saying, you know, like, why is our skin a little bit different? anything like that. It just was always present. But I don't think that it was until a little bit later on that I started realizing that there wasn't as much representation for someone with as much of a multicultural background or someone coming from my lived experience. Um, in the in the media that I was watching early on in the 90s with shows like The Cosby Show. I I just know for a fact that I had moments in front of the television seeing Raven Simone mm-hmm. and just being like okay we are kind of similar <laughs> I can't quite figure it out I don't know exactly what it is and it's kind of funny because then later in life like she came out and like I think that I was picking up on some other vibes as well, beyond the multicultural background. And then also uh, the film Eve's Bayou with Journey uh, Smollett. Again, I just saw something in her. I didn't know exactly that it was representation for me. It wasn't uh, overt, <laughs> uh, but I definitely saw a resemblance there. Sure. And I... I I didn't even really realize the full importance of that for me. It just was like, oh, cool. All right. And then, Christina, you brought up shows like Hanging with Mr. Cooper, Mm -hmm. Raven, um, or... Sister, um, Sister. Sister, Sister, yeah. And it's just like these unspoken sort of commonalities. Mm -hmm. And then, yeah, later in life, when I started realizing that I was a gay individual... Then it was just this added layer of, I don't think that I've really seen a mixed queer woman who who I fully feel like I connect with. Interesting. Do you remember the first gay character you saw on screen? The first gay character I saw on screen, I think it would have to go back to, like, Ellen. And, like... Before she was even, like, having her TV show, um, her talk show, rather, she had The Ellen Show, and, like, even before she came out on that show, I remember also seeing some similarity there. Also, Rosie O'Donnell. I was obsessed with The Rosie O'Donnell Show. Obsessed. And I think that a lot of that comes into play 
with how theatrical she was and how much theater, um, Broadway, music, all of the guests she had on definitely appealed to me because I am a musical theater nerd. Um, And so that definitely drew me in. But again, I saw something in her that was like, "Mm, I can't put my finger on this, but I'm going to figure this out. What about you, Brie? (laughs) Well, I'm a brunette (laughs) white girl, so that part of my identity was well covered. I guess there aren't that many, like, brunette curly-haired. There aren't a lot of curly-haired people in TV, I think probably because it's, like, such a pain for continuity. (laughs) (laughs) So even people who do have curly hair, like, they're always wearing wigs because it's impossible to control curly hair. But, like, not seeing girls with curly hair on screen was not a big issue for me because Hermione Granger existed and you know we can unpack the JK Rowling of it all but at the time you know a bossy giant bushy haired girl who wasn't like attractive but was brave and like you know smart and her friends loved her anyways like that was important to me but I credit the lack of representation of more diverse sexualities to the fact that I didn't identify until I was in my 20s for either of my queer identities. Like, I still have yet to see an asexual character on TV that I feel represents me. Um, The only female human asexual character on screen right now was the, like, bit part Florence from Sex Education. She's, like, a part of a montage where Gillian Anderson is, like, giving all the kids, like, their diagnoses of, like, oh, you're this thing, you're that thing. And she's, like, Mm -hmm. I don't want to have sex. And she's, like, you might be asexual. And Florence is, like, cool. And then she never talks again for the rest of the the show. Mm -hmm. So I'm, like, that's nothing. I'm glad it's there. Like, I'm glad that somebody, like, articulated, like, this is what asexuality means. Um, but, like, I, I don't get anything out of that character. She was, like, she wore a beret and was in theater, I guess. Like, <laughs> I don't know. What am I supposed to do with that information? And bisexuality, I don't even know what the first bi character I saw on TV was because, like, I didn't know that was an option. For both asexuality and bisexuality, I had no idea that those were things you could be. I knew gay people existed pretty early on. I don't know what the first gay character I saw was. It was probably the one that, the one that I paid attention to most was probably Mark from Ugly Betty. Um, Mm. But, you know, he was played very stereotypically and he was a guy. So, like, there was only so much that I was ever going to really connect with, you know, personally. Um, But, like, I grew up only understanding everything in the binary. So the idea that you could be more than one, you know, you could check multiple boxes (laughs) would have probably saved me a lot of confusion as a kid. Mm -hmm, Because I remember, like, I would notice a girl in my class and I'd be like, wow, she's really pretty. And like, I couldn't stop looking at like a girl, like just any girl. Like sometimes there was a girl that was cute. And I was like, oh my god am I a lesbian and like at first that was very scary because when you're from a conservative town the word lesbian is thrown around like an insult and you know you don't really have a real understanding of what that means but you know it's going to make your life harder Mm -hmm. and I was you know already a very strange child who was bullied very deeply and I'm like man if I'm a lesbian too I'm not going to make it out of middle school alive but like so I'd have this conversation with myself where I'd be like all right am I a lesbian well no because I still have a crush on that boy okay, well, then it must be fine. I must just be straight. (laughs) And the fact that I had that conversation truly like twice a week my entire life uh, until I was like 24 years old is unacceptable. Mm -hmm. Like 
that there there's more than two options and i felt i spent so long just being so confused and like not wanting to tell anyone because god forbid anybody knew that i was questioning anything and then asexuality was like a real sucker punch because like that completely would have fundamentally changed the way that I approach relationships but I approach them as like I'm broken so I will I will work hard to figure out what's wrong with me <laughs> and it turns out nothing I was just trying to get something out of relationships for with somebody else's expectations in my head not my own and that was really hard for a long time so like my connection to representation matters is definitely more on the sexuality side and the making sure that kids know that they aren't broken <laughs> and that there's <laughs> nothing wrong with them and that people are out there who will love them even if the people around them at the moment like are shitty and terrible and i i you know if we want to transition to like making art it's really important for me to not diminish queer representation and like be canonical about it you know none of this like oh yeah Dumbledore was definitely gay five years later like no right. I want it canonically from the beginning in text no mm -hmm. subtext but of course that that has its challenges as well so I want to ask you guys um how like concrete or explicit for you does representation really need to be in order for it to like feel like you've gotten something or done something depending on if you're consuming or creating for me and Brie, you spoke to um, the fact that you don't really remember seeing a bisexual character um, in media. And that really resonates because even with earlier representation that I would see in media, it was always through a super male lens, mm -hmm. yes. uh, straight male lens. And there was always the uncertainty of yes, this woman is kissing this other woman, but then she also has a husband who she's about to go home to. And this relationship with a woman is causing turmoil in her marriage. Yeah. So that's bad. That's Queerness not a good... only comes out with infidelity. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so really only in recent years have I started seeing authentic portrayals of queer relationships... Um, especially queer relationships between two people of color yeah. that aren't portraying the trauma of infidelity, of, you know, queer baiting audiences. But yeah, recent, recent years, I think there's definitely been more authentic representation of connection between people, whether it's sexual, emotional, romantic, long-term relationships, polyamorous relationships what have you but at least these people are living real authentic lives and they're not just a plot device what's right. a what's a good example of that in your opinion um i think that i may destroy you um kwame you know pursuing relationships with other black men i think that that is really the category of queer representation that is kind of hard to come by. Yeah. Really, it, whether it's heterosexual relationships, queer relationships, there is sort of a fixation now on having characters um, be engaged in an interracial relationship where one of those people is white. Um, so just to see 
I mean, obviously his storyline involves some not great moments with other black men, but ultimately it's not used as an incentive for him to stop dating black men or anything like that. And of course, I'm speaking to all of these male relationships, but... But, uh, yeah, there's not a lot. I thought the second season of Sex Education, though it is another white love interest, but Mm -hmm. I thought that was, like, really lovely, the way that they handled that. For Ola, is that her name? And what's the other one? I can't remember. I think it is Ola and someone else. It's the ex-girlfriend of the protagonist. Aliens. She's obsessed with alien sex. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah, they're very cute. They're very, very cute. Yeah, I wish I'd seen more of that when I was a kid because I, I like, so I'm with a, you know, I'm I'm engaged to a male partner. So like I, from all, by, by all intents and purposes, look like I'm in a straight heterosexual relationship. And so like, it's always been because I learned so much about myself within this relationship, it's been kind of a weird coming out journey because it's like, who cares? <laughs> Mm-hmm. Um, but also, like, I care because it it has, especially looking back, influenced so much of my life, especially, like, the asexual part. Um, but I, I've definitely found it to be very complicated navigating, like, how I talk about queerness and how I, like, am a part of queer community in tiny little parts. And I always do kind of feel like an invader. Like, I feel like, you know, I, I got out you know, clean. So what what do I have to offer? And to an extent, like, I get that. Like, to an extent, I definitely shouldn't be taking space in certain queer communities because, like, there is something that I think people get from those communities um, and that support group that I don't need in the same mm-hmm. way. And mm-hmm. certainly, like, opportunities, you know, like grants and things like that, it's always complicated because it's like, do I technically qualify? Yes, but should I be taking space? Probably not. Like, you know, right. I, I'm not that I'm going to be super successful on my own, but also, like, <laughs> I that's that's not for me. That's not the point. And I, I, I know, Christina, you've mentioned that before as well as being a complicating factor for you navigating as a creator. Yeah. So my sort of general stance on whether or not I like act on my identity is assessing whether or not I'm taking someone else's spot because while I am a person of color and I am of South Asian descent, if it's like an opportunity that's only going to go to one South Asian woman or person, um, I don't like I I undeniably benefit from white privilege. I have a white half that that puts me in in rooms that maybe others of my like same background, at least my mom's background, wouldn't get in or wouldn't be taken as seriously in. It's it's hard to navigate because there isn't like a fund for mixed race people. There isn't like a a panel about being mixed race there isn't at least not yet I'm sure that might become more of a thing or maybe I'll just program one myself but um, (laughs) there isn't there isn't like a, a person in Hollywood who is looking to mentor people of specific mixed identities and so it's like I don't have avenues I feel like I can ethically explore but then I also don't have the same like avenues that white women do. So I, I can't quite go to another to a white woman and say like, don't you see yourself in me 
<laughs> like mentor me or or consider me for this because I do still have discrimination against me that white women do not have in some ways but I also do not have the same hurdle that women of color in general have women specifically with darker skin have and just like South Asian women who have really ethnic names have right and so it's like a constant balancing act for me of like making sure that I'm always checking my own privilege because I do have that I have yes I don't I can't always qualify for very specific things at least I don't feel like I I can or should um but I also have the ability to not be put in a box specifically like no one's gonna say you can only tell South Asian stories because I don't have a South Asian name and I don't fully look like that the point is like if it's about being included I think that I have space I have a right to claim space to just be included to be acknowledged to if you want an opinion from someone who has like a nuanced mixed background great um you're a person but if it's like you want a panel of south asian creators to talk about like making art as south asian creators or or representing south asian identities or and there are like four slots i don't think i should be taking one of those or if there's a grant I don't think I should be applying for that. But it also, again, comes at like this, the expense of like, well, where is my place? And where am I going to get an equal shot? And, and that doesn't currently exist. Like yesterday or two days ago, I saw a tweet that was from, I can't remember her name, but she's a TV writer and she was like, uh, Asian American TV writers tweet at me. And I was like, should I respond to this? <laughs> I don't know if I should respond to this. Like, I would like to, but I don't know if I should throw my hat in the ring here. And I just ultimately decided not to. Um, and yeah. <laughs> but, it, th- and that's like, those are the, the constant debates. And yeah. 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 I think the hard part about like navigating ethically around white privilege is that white privilege is so such like a baked in part of our culture that like the privileges you get from it are often unseen are things that like sometimes neither party who is like giving or receiving white privilege opportunities like recognize it as such Mm -hmm. but it's very easy to recognize moments where you're like oh i'm about to like take a space from someone who doesn't get that advantage so i think that a lot of like annoying white people or people who can pass as white or you know insert whatever privilege here like get very defensive because they're like well i i also need that opportunity because they are count they don't count all of the sort of unseen white privileges that they have because it's hard you can't measure it you can't tally up like all right today i use my white privilege four times so tomorrow i need to donate to four you know people of color causes and all be even like that's not how it works so it's it's so much just about like judgment calls like there's no right or wrong answer to should you respond to that tweet and I, i think that that is that is something that we can't really give anyone answers to it ultimately comes down to like do you think that responding is in the spirit of the tweet you know, like, right. or the opportunity, like, is your attendance here in the spirit of it? Or because you can technically check a box and like, you got to take whatever you can to get ahead in this business, kid. Mm-hmm. I, I want to hear from Danny, but I, I want to also say that this is kind of, to me, like the work that needs to go into getting to the other side of it, where there's so much representation across the board that people don't have to feel like they're taking anyone's spot by just pursuing an opportunity, but we're not there yet. And if I want to see the industry that I actually want to be part of, 
I need to navigate it with integrity. Um, and I try to do that as much as possible. But Danny, do you have thoughts? <laughs> yeah, I'm curious, sure. Danny, from like a casting perspective, since you're an actress. Well, definitely from a casting perspective. Um, just really quick, I want to speak to, I mean, everything that you just said, Christina. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I agree. I mean, all of the listeners can't really see that I was very vigorously nodding my head as she was saying all of that. But yes, it's being a mixed person who has white privilege in the way that we have lighter skin and we are white passing in some circumstances because it it does change from moment to moment, right? It's Mm -hmm. If we're in a room full of white people, they go what are you? Yep, yep. But then if we're in a room with only people of color, then we're the white person in the room. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's, I don't want to say that it's a difficult part of my life because mm-hmm. I have so much privilege in being able to pass as a white person in this world, mm-hmm. in this country. But it just, it makes... Diving into my identity and knowing who I am for myself, even before I bring it to some other table, just a little bit trickier. And I have, I mean, I'm about to turn 33 and I'm still trying to really pinpoint where do I belong? How do I fit into this world? Like you said, when you're thinking about applying to grants that are specifically for a South Asian community, when I was applying for colleges, I was desperate for financial aid. I, my upbringing was very, very hard for money. Yeah. And I had so many people say to me, well, you should be applying for the African-American scholarships and look into this um, financial aid for black students who blah, blah, blah. But even at 16, 17, when I was starting to look into these things, even then I knew that it wasn't right for me to be taking those places from people who have an entirely different lived experience than I do because they're receiving much poorer treatment because of their skin color. Mm -hmm. And so it's like you said, Christina, very often I come to the point where I just decide not to do the thing. Where that comes into play with casting, my initial dance with this whole (laughs) thing in regards to casting and auditioning Uh, was for, again, theater. I think when you're going into uh, straight theater, so plays, dramas, whatever, comedies, what have you, I think there's a little bit more wiggle room, or at least when I was younger and I was auditioning and and trying to get parts. Uh, But for musical theater, there's definitely more of a stigma around being a person of color in a leading role, and certainly being a mixed person in a show that might 
be focused on race relations. So for example, one of my absolute dream shows, actually two of my dream shows, but beyond beyond dream show is Ragtime, the musical. I don't know if you guys are familiar with this. It's a gorgeous, gorgeous story about, oh gosh, well, the ragtime era, but (laughs) there are many like key players, but the main story is about a black couple who have a baby and they're not able to uh, live the life that they want to live because of various reasons. I'm doing a very terrible job of giving a synopsis of this show, but anyway, (laughs) um, there is very much a hard-drawn line of if you're cast in the show, you're either cast in the black part of the cast or the white part of the cast because the segregation is very real. And so... uh, the lead char- character of Sarah, who was played by Audra McDonald, queen, icon, legend, mm-hmm. um, has to be portrayed by a woman who is darker because of the conditions that she's in in the story. Another example, Hairspray. I know that it's light, it's campy, everything. I have constantly considered if I ever audition for that show and I want to be cast in any sort of way, I don't think that I'm white enough to be cast in a white role and I am certainly not black enough to be cast in a black role. And I believe that those roles should be going to the actors who better fit them but it's just one of those situations where it's just a shitty place to be in I don't know I know that there's worse things in the world and and again I have incredibly favorable white privilege as a white passing person but when I'm in very very nuanced situations like that Mm -hmm. that comes as a detriment well when you're forced into a binary but don't actually identify as one that can be really dehumanizing Absolutely. And when you don't see representation of yourself and, you know, as just a viewer or as someone trying to work in an industry, then that can really be to the detriment of your opportunities. And you are not less valuable, you, Danny, or you, our listeners, because you don't fit on the spectrum that currently exists. And I think that's so much of why we wanted to have this conversation, but also wanted to have this conversation on this podcast, because, like, the rules, the binaries that exist in Hollywood are not reflective of actual experiences. And we need more people telling their stories so that we can feel like we're allowed to take up space where we think we are best utilized. And we're allowed to tell stories from our deeply personal perspectives without feeling like we're taking the microphone away from somebody else. And I think the only way that we can realistically do that is to just make deeply personal stories for ourselves and that doesn't always necessarily mean like a social justice oriented story like this is also a conversation the three of us have had a lot is like you know what makes something good representation isn't necessarily that you're showing off the trauma of your particular subset of humanity but that you're allowing characters to be full humans outside Mm -hmm. of their identity but also fully living in their identity it is not just like you know, a t-shirt that they wear, like, oh, yeah, I'm gay. (laughs) Oh, yeah, I'm half (laughs) South Asian. But, like, they are allowed to be their identity, but they're also allowed to exist 
outside of simply that being the drivers of story. And I think that that's a nuance that is missed a lot in conversations about representation because it's always like either trauma porn or Mm -hmm. it's, you know, what is the legislative angle to your story? And it's like, well, I wanted to tell a ghost story and there's not really a deeper meaning, but I want all of these characters to be very specifically cast as certain queer demographics, certain people of color, you know, whatever. And that's important to me because there's a lot of ghost stories with just white people and straight people. And I like ghost stories, but I want to see me in them. And I think that that is just as valuable of a storytelling mechanism that is also valuable for, you know, this wider conversation that we're having. Yeah, I think I think it's, you know, obviously casting with intention, but also writing with intention. And so for me, I don't like I, I have I usually have a lot of different people of color in my work of different backgrounds. And uh, sometimes I would say most of the time I write with a specific identity in mind but sometimes it is a little bit looser and then it's like who do I fall in love with in the room and and do want to want to give them that role and I maybe will say like I want a person of color for this role but I don't know yet exactly who this person is and I'm gonna see a lot of different people and then once I cast then I have that in mind and what I think is really necessary though is that you go back and revise for who that person now is and I think that's the like thing that's often missing from kind of the like colorblind casting approach which is that like now you have a black person in this role do their actions and motivations make sense walking through this plot with these interactions and these circumstances if they are a black human make sure you know like or if they're an Asian American or you know Middle Eastern because they might behave differently in this airport scene, <laughs> you know, like they might, there, there are different things that, that go into play with like code switching and needing to uh, make other people feel comfortable by your presence that, that a white character maybe wouldn't have to and, or a, a straight character wouldn't have to or whatever the, the sort of um, like dominant identity is that wouldn't have to and you've written it with like through your own lens maybe because that's not how you identify and and so you have to go back and make sure that you're doing that authentically Uh, and that's something that I think people need to really pay attention to when they are trying to be inclusive beyond their own identity whether you know regardless of if you're a white person or not just in general trying to include outside of your own identity yeah, I think especially in indie film, include your actor in that conversation. Like when you start the, the rewriting process, like sit with them and talk about like the motivations about the characters, like ask them what they think, because that'll not only make your story more authentic, but it will also make that performer a lot more attached to your project and feel like a more vested interest in, in helping out. Because that can be a, a tricky thing when you don't have a lot of money and a lot of it is like good faith and good script. And that's kind of why everyone's coming together today. And the more you can give people ownership over the project, the better it's going to be on every side and the more willing they're going to be to help you out in the future and to help promote when it comes out like make it a good experience for people and not only will they help you out more on like a logistics side but they'll also like enjoy the experience more and I think that that's more important than almost anything yeah I mean media affects culture media the things that get popular inform broader culture about what we prioritize and what we find important and who we consider human we've heard countless times uh Hollywood executives saying that 
They don't believe that films uh, will sell at the box office if they are black-led or if they're woman-led, if they have casts that are historically maybe not represented on screen. And it's like, yeah, you guys are the ones with the power to change that. (laughs) Right. So exactly what you were just saying, Brie, it's like we should be making work that represents the world we live in and the world that we want to live in. I mean, not to turn into a meme here, but yes, this is the future that liberals want. We (laughs) want to see people of different colors on screen, people of different identities. And unfortunately, the people, the gatekeepers, Mm -hmm. with all of the power, are just so stuck to the way that it's always been. And that I just never understood that mentality of them sort of saying, well, they won't buy the films, you know, like as if the power doesn't stop with them. Um, And, but then, you know, obviously they're proven wrong Mm -hmm. when films like Black Panther are selling out and reaching audiences no matter what the color but certainly black audiences I mean talk about representation that film and that character I mean also the women warriors Mm -hmm. yes it's it's beyond and it speaks for itself yeah we have to give more credit to allowing these stories to be told because at the end of the day they're universal it's not like only Asian audiences are going to go see that or only black audiences or only queer audiences or X, Y, Z. If it is truthful mm-hmm. and if it is representing these people authentically, it's going to reach every audience. Right. Yeah. It's the authenticity piece. I think that Hollywood executives, I mean, to your point earlier, Danny, it's interesting because I think that they are only surrounding themselves with with people who are also yeah and so yeah they're like I wouldn't go see this would you go see this would you go see this and they're all like no I wouldn't and so then that's sort of the end of their the conclusions that they draw um Mm -hmm. it's sort of like I was watching last night uh AOC Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's incredible Instagram live yes exactly and um one of the things she brought up was how polling data had her losing by this huge margin before her general election win. And that's because they only polled the people that are most likely to vote, and those are just old people. <laughs> and, like, yeah. and so they were just making assumptions about who the voting audience is, right? But also, if you think about it from an executive level, it's like, who's the you know, spending audience, who's the movie-watching audience, and they're making assumptions and they're assuming it's themselves because that's, like, historically what it has been. And they're not uh, accounting for the fact that the it's just a whole new world <laughs> outside of their bubbles, you know? Well, and also so much of it is marketing. Like, yeah. if you market something well, anybody will see your movie or they'll hate see it or they'll, like, make a, a stink about it and try to get it taken out of theater so everyone else will see it because they're like, man, that guy's crazy. Let's go see this movie. <laughs> like, and it, it reminds me of, um, I can't remember her name, but the, I think her name is Gloria Calderon-Kellett, the writer of One Day at a Time. She mm-hmm. did this tweet thread a couple of weeks ago 
uh, canonically when we were recording this, not a couple weeks ago from when you were hearing this, but she had a tweet thread about how um, One Day at a Time is like universally beloved by audiences and critics, but it had a really hard time getting viewership because they didn't get the same access to marketing spend as a lot of other shows where like mm-hmm. they would try to get on like the late night shows. Apparently late night shows are, you know, despite my, my assumption that they're kind of over and mostly just YouTube videos at this point are apparently still a really big part of getting TV viewership. And so getting on like one of those little fun Jimmy Kimmel bits is like a big deal for showrunners and actors and performers who are trying to promote their television shows, but they could never get um, even the EGOT winning Rita Moreno on like a Jimmy Kimmel. I don't remember what exact show. I don't think she named names, but then like they were like, oh, we don't have time in our schedule. But then she'd see someone get booked at the last minute from yet another one of the like SWAT shows. You know, all of these white people that are already on these shows that already have this ad spend, they're continuing to get more presence where these other shows that are beloved and really great just can't get the the equal ad spend and marketing acceptance and that's also so much of like why movies fail like movies are set up to fail mm-hmm. tv shows are set up to fail because yeah. like they it's a self-fulfilling prophecy but it's also it's fucking targeted they know what they're doing yeah mm-hmm. i they just want to see their buddies i want to piggyback on that but also just to shout her out she did do a twitter thread that was for mixed writers specifically. She was like, oh, where good. are my yeah, she, mixed she writers at? Those. And I was like, finally, like I can reply <laughs> to this without feeling. <laughs> and it was, it was cool because I also found out this woman I had been following for quite a while on Twitter was half West Indian. Her, her, one of her parents also from, I believe her mom also from Trinidad of Indian descent. And I was like, I had no idea. And anyway, so I thought that was cool. Uh, of her to like specifically see that that lack of representation and like push for an opportunity for people to feel heard and to connect with each other. The other thing I was going to say earlier to to Danny's point about executives not being willing um, to increase their diversity, I think what we're seeing now is a shift in in that happening in the casting, but it's still very much lacking in behind the scenes, right? And mm-hmm. I think that's where, like, we're lacking the authenticity, where there is just a lot of colorblind casting, but no real, like, putting the pen in the hand of the person who identifies as that, or the lens in the hand of the person that identifies as that, um, or even, like, including uh, consultants, <laughs> at the very least, mm-hmm. if not putting them in the, like, position of power. And, and that's... So I, I feel like, okay, we've gotten this sort of like Matt Damon version of diversity in the casting, as he liked to say in that one episode of Project Greenlight, but that's not good enough. Uh, and so what I hope for and what obviously I think most of our listeners will hope for because they're filmmakers is, is for those doors to really start opening. similarly with men writing women like I uh, so I we've talked about this in our intro episode but I I am Marvel superhero trash I will watch any semi-decent looking superhero movie Uh, I haven't seen a lot of the DC movies and that's because they look actually bad Sorry, yeah. not sorry, Zack Snyder. But uh, <laughs> I remember, so Wonder Woman came out first and everyone was like super psyched and it was fine and there was stuff to like about it. But I was like, I left the theater like something felt 
off about that. And like, it wasn't just the plotting was bad because they spent the first third of the movie on an island with no plot happening. She just sort of runs around with a bunch of women and then leaves and never mentions it again. And it's like, why did we spend so much of the fucking plot where no character development is taking place? But fine. But then I went and saw Captain Marvel and I like, walked away from it being like, I feel different. And I looked it up and I can't believe I didn't notice it at the time, but because obviously both movies were lauded for like, you know, um, uh, what's her name? Patty Jenkins. Patty Jenkins. Yeah. So Patty Jenkins had like a lot of press around like first female director of DC movie, blah, blah, blah. And um, Anna Bowden was the co-director of Captain Marvel. So like I knew both movies had female directors in some way, but I didn't actually bother to look up the writers. Mm -hmm. Wonder Woman was absolutely written by a man Mm -hmm. and uh, Captain Marvel was written by a woman. And I was like, oh, I felt that like Mm -hmm. in my body. I felt that. Mm-hmm. Like the, you know, it's the iconic scene, but I think it's iconic for a reason where, you know, at the very end of the movie of Captain Marvel and the guy, uh, Jude Law, evil Jude Law is trying to get her to fight him without her powers. And she's like, I have nothing to prove to you. And that is the most female response of all time because the male response would be, okay, yeah, let's figure it out. But mm-hmm. it's like, I have special magic powers. I, of course I'm going to use them, you <laughs> idiot. You're evil. Like, I don't have to prove anything to you. I just have to beat you. Yeah. And I, I feel like that is definitely a female experience in, like, a really specific way that a male writer will never comprehend. And I watch a lot of shows written by male writers and, like, action sequences with women. And, like, you can tell when it's a dude writing it. And, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I'd like more women, please. <laughs> yeah. Yes. That, that's my conclusion to that rant. <laughs> it's more women, please. And yeah, women across the spectrum of identities. Identities in front of, behind the camera. Yeah. Like, you think people can't tell. We can tell. I also oh, am yeah. reminded of that um, that great YouTube video. Or maybe it wasn't a YouTube video, but it was some promotional video that the cinematographer behind um, Insecure did about like lighting Mm, black people Mm -hmm. and ever since I watched that movie every time I'm watching uh something with black characters I pay attention to the lighting and I'm like that person that was not a black cinematographer I can tell because all the white people are like beautifully contrasted and then like every black person is like a shadow behind them and it's like they're in the fucking same light. They're outside. How are you doing this so badly? <laughs> yeah, and yes. I, you know, I'm experiencing that as a white person. Like, I cannot even imagine how fucking devastating it is and not be able to fucking see the character that looks like you. Like, mm-hmm. it's so simple that your whole job is so we can see the characters. Yeah. Yeah. I just saw a tweet. God, I wish I could remember who it was because it was like a prominent black actress. And she said something to the effect of, you know, Um, It's 2020, and still I have to request that my hair and makeup department is a black person. Um, And I think that that is something that really isn't discussed very much uh, widely in the industry. But in terms of accurate representation, you can have a black actor, a black character in your work, But if you're not portraying them the way that they are naturally, you know, presenting in the world, then you're doing a major disservice and it's basically taking steps backwards. Um, And I think especially when it comes, I mean, both hair and makeup, if you're not putting the right 
foundation shades on people and you're really just mm-hmm. messing up that wig situation it's yeah you're either whitewashing them or you're making them look bad and mm-hmm. both of those options are terrible yep. because then you're making that individual performer feel like shit like their natural state isn't already beautiful and valid and perfect mm-hmm. and then you're making everyone who watches them feel like well, I don't look like that, but they're on TV, so yeah. I must be doing something wrong. Because again, media sets the culture. Mm-hmm. When we see something on TV, like we know intuitively, even if we're not in the industry, it took a lot of steps to get to that point. So that must be correct. Mm-hmm. What I see must be correct, unless I am told otherwise. So mm-hmm. if I don't look like that, if I don't behave like that, if I don't identify like that, then something is wrong with me. Mm-hmm. And that yeah. fucks you up as a kid. Yeah. Yeah women in general just the fact that nobody washes their makeup off before going to bed in a scene in anything yes (laughs) it's like i'm supposed to look like that even when i fucking go to sleep like and when i wake up in the morning like what the fuck yeah the waking up is what pisses me off because i'll admit i sometimes don't take my makeup (laughs) off when i go to bed because i keep forgetting to buy makeup remover uh, my makeup remover is not having my camera on during Zoom meetings. You could just be like me and never, ever wear makeup. So I go. rarely do. It's only when we're like doing an event that it's recorded. I have a, this is maybe a tangent that's not necessarily to keep in, but I have a general, like, I don't like makeup. I just don't like putting it on. I don't like wearing it. I don't feel like myself when I see myself in it. Like, sure, sometimes it's like, oh, I look nicer because I don't have dark circles under my eyes but (laughs) generally I'm just not into wearing makeup but I totally get people are and and that they love it and I guess for me my general stance is I will not wear makeup out to an event until men or just people across the spectrum are accepted wearing makeup because they love it too as frequently as women are expected to like that we don't have equality then so i'm gonna like set the standard that women can be women and not wear makeup well speaking of representation and makeup if you want to cut all of this out that's fine but i'm gonna try to like keep the ball Mm -hmm. rolling Mm -hmm. is something that Mm -hmm. was very toxic for me as a kid is that the only two types of women that i saw on tv were girly girls who wore lots of makeup and tomboys who wore no makeup And, like, it's not just the makeup Mm -hmm. thing, but, like, those are the two types of women. And, like, even where, like, shows where, like, the girly girl was kind of the protagonist, usually there was some kind of plot line where she had to, you know, not be so girly, and that's how she won. And so, like, I was trained from a very early age to, like, look down on other girls who were girlier. Me too. But then the weird thing was, which I didn't notice until a little bit later in my teenage years, was that the tomboys didn't get treated that much better. Like, yeah. they got slightly more respect because they basically presented more manlike. Like, they, they were competitive and feisty. And, like, you know, when women take on, quote unquote, male traits, that is seen as better. But then those women weren't seen as desirable. So you were either desirable and uh-huh. useless or undesirable Mm -hmm. and worthy of at least a little bit of respect. And both of those roles sucked. But I spent so much of my youth like 
resenting other women, hating when another girl like joined the play group that I was in. I was like, no, I'm the one girl mm-hmm. because that was also all that I saw. <laughs> I was, you know, groups of tons of boys and then the one token girl. And I wanted to be the token girl and I wanted to be respected by my male peers. But then a girl who'd come in and be like a little girlier than me, she would get all the attention all of a sudden. And, you know, my one of the guys role was destroyed. And that destroyed my relationships with a lot of like women growing up. Like I grew up thinking that I hated girls and I didn't like like I didn't mm-hmm. I just wasn't gonna have female friends and that's not true I was just trained to see other women as competition rather than just like people that would probably have helped a lot to be friends with <laughs> right and mm-hmm. that came from media I can like track the shows that taught me those lessons and that's so fucked up especially in children's media are you kidding like we're yeah. pitting our children against each other I definitely feel that Brie mm-hmm. and um especially in exploring my sexuality, uh, there is certainly a hard binary in the lesbian community between are you butch, are you femme? Pretty much most of the early representation I saw for lesbian women in media were butch women who were not likable, definitely not someone that you would aspire to. Um, Now I think definitely there are blurrier lines where that's uh, concerned. But aside from media, just living my life as a lesbian woman, um, I, again, I don't know where I fit in because I do think that I fall into the more feminine side of things. I love getting dressed up. I love wearing makeup. But being somewhat a gay woman, I want to present as that, especially to other members of the community. But no one sees me as gay when they first meet me. No one sees me as black and no one sees me as gay. And it's so awkward because I feel like I have to be like, hi, I'm Danny, and this is my rainbow flag. (laughs) And this is my Black Lives Matter fist. And like all of these things, um, I think that femme erasure in the community, if you're bi, lesbian, whatever, um, that's definitely an issue that needs to be still addressed today. I think that I definitely kind of teeter between my gender expression where that's concerned, but... I don't really know if I have anything to offer in terms of how we could do better. I think media representation is. Yeah, I think just representing people who are like across the spectrum and that that's normal. Normalizing, not assuming heterosexuality and not assuming. Yes. Yes. Exactly. Um, To sort of what you were saying, Brie, I did have girlfriends as a kid, but I did have a similar like binary perspective on how you're supposed to be and I always identified, speaking of like representation as a kid, I always felt represented by the tomboys that I saw in movies. I remember there was like Joe on the Facts of Life. I loved watching reruns of that. And I was all about Joe. Mm-hmm. And whenever there was a Mary Kate and Ashley movie, I was Mary Kate because she was mm-hmm. always the tomboy. Like that was 
how I saw myself because I didn't like the girly things and I didn't identify with that so it was like okay if I don't like most of these things and I'm not a girly girl so I'm a tomboy and this is like what I'm into and it wasn't until really college where I started to sort of like find my own sense of identity that like I can I can just be myself and that there isn't like a way that I'm supposed to be and I don't have to fit in a perfect box and that it's nothing is binary about any kind of identity I think across the board and and so I found that like I can wear you know a dress to an event and then I can wear a fucking like tuxedo if I want to and like Mm -hmm. a bow tie and whatever and like if I like it and that's me that's me and that's fine Um, but it took a, a it was a journey getting there definitely um normalize women wearing suits (laughs) yes agreed there are many tumblr photo compilations that would agree with you oh (laughs) i've seen them (laughs) i think the gay experience is seeing those posts on tumblr and being like ah yeah i see that (laughs) (laughs) it's like what does being gay in america mean this tumblr (laughs) Yep. <laughs> this, this photo collection of Kate Blanchett et cetera, and Tessa Thompson wearing suits. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I think also on the same, like, token, gay women can wear dresses all the time, right? And, like, straight women can wear suits and none of it is tied. It's just, like, who you are. Each person is an individual. And that's, I think, what we're hoping to get to. I think our obsession with labels is more rooted in our obsession with being able to decide who somebody is without knowing anything about them because we're all so narcissistic. So if I can put you in a box, I can be like, okay, cool. That's what you are. I'm done learning about you. Like, Mm -hmm. I I know everything I need to know moving on. Yeah, I think, I mean, Danny, you I'm sure relate to this. The number one question I get asked by anyone when I first meet them outside of my name is, where are you from? Mm -hmm. And then it's like, well, where are you really from? When I was a kid, it really bothered me because it was very othering. I went through a period where I would get really annoyed and be like antagonistic when they would say, where are you really from? And I would be like, well, I'm from, you know, New York City. And they're like, well, no, where are you really from? And I would say, well, I'm actually from Long Island. I was born. And I'm like, well, where are you really from? And it's like, well, my mom gave birth to me. You know, like it was just sort of a journey. But then now I would say I like... I don't know, I just answer them, I just tell them and and accept it because I also am really proud of my mixture and like they can respond how they're going to respond and it's interesting because I find myself wanting to do it too when I meet other mixed people but not because I want to fetishize them but because I want to like have that camaraderie. Exactly, Mm -hmm. I want to be like me too or Mm -hmm. like you know Um, but I don't want to do the thing that gets done to me all the time. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that's always the the challenge but I always welcome it from people of color particularly ethnically ambiguous people of color because I feel like they're trying to find that connection too and then I tell them and they're like oh I'm also like this percentage of whatever and these other things and then we have like a connection that I don't get with Mm -hmm. most people definitely again hard agree across the board (laughs) um when I was younger I would say before my angsty teen years when I caught a major attitude with the world. Um, (laughs) I would constantly be asked the question, what are you? Um, And it was so normalized for me that it didn't really upset me because it was such a part of my everyday life. But, uh, But then when I was getting older and I moved away from uh, my home outside of Philly, I would be 
in New York uh, in, in college on Long Island. And then people would start to ask, where are you from? So then I would say, oh, you know, I'm from Philadelphia, just outside, whatever, this, that, and the other thing. And they would say, where are you really from? Similarly. Uh-huh. And I would go through the same dance. I would either give them the direct answer or I would have a little fun with it and say, okay, if you're going to do this, then we're definitely going to go into it. So I would I would get down to the county that I was born in. <laughs> um, but now in my like further adult years, I look at myself and I'm like, what about me made you decide that you had to ask where I'm from? It's -hmm. because you can't pinpoint what my background is. But if we're having a conversation, I have no accent. I don't even have a Philadelphia accent. Now I'm just like, no offense white people, but you're so fixated on putting people in a box to to know for yourself, okay, what is this person I need to know immediately? And it just blows my mind. I think it's also like them feeling what like safe like can they say yeah. certain things in front of you I bet oh. that's a big part of it I, I yeah. also think that you know not to give white people any credit because we don't deserve any of it <laughs> um, but I know from like white person to white person a lot of times because white is not an identity it is the the you know ruling identity the you know it's what gets the supremacy but like I am not white I am Italian French and a handful of like Irish English stuff in the background. Mm -hmm. And so we white people talk about that all the time. Mm -hmm. And um, so I so some people I think might be coming at it from that perspective. I doubt many are usually it's the other reasons. But Mm -hmm. I have certainly like when I when when it comes up in conversation, like it's usually in context of like, oh, so you're full Italian. I'm like, oh, no, I just have an extremely Italian last name. I'm actually (laughs) more French than, uh, you know, and then that becomes the conversation. Mm-hmm. I think white people just want to be interesting because like yeah. we understand that white gives us power but also white is nothing like what the fuck is white mm-hmm. and so we're like yes I'm xyz and it's like you don't have any ties culturally to any of those things but you <laughs> right. just want to be able to say that you're more complicated than you actually are which is just like a basic ass white person from Colorado <laughs> no one cares about you and your identity and that upsets you and maybe you should live in that Mm-hmm. <laughs> Are there any takeaways that we have for the uh, creators in our audience? Because this is definitely a, a creator-focused podcast. So what would we say right. to to anyone, to creators in particular? Like, what what's our passing advice? Don't just keep watching the same stuff that you make. Diversify your consumption. Yeah, especially if you're trying to really, like, pinpoint the difference between authentic authenticity and just like it's all in the casting and nowhere else mm-hmm. watch like no, look at who makes the stuff and do comparisons I would also say that if you want a certain kind of representation and you're not seeing it and it's yours especially like if it's your own representation you should go out there and and make it because you know waiting for someone else to do it is is probably you're just going to be left waiting for a long time and just to talk about my own work like I know how hard it is on the actor side to be mixed and and feel like you can't uh, uh, audition for certain things and so for me knowing that knowing how I feel uh, just as a human in the world of mixed identities and having the power to cast I intentionally write 
mixed race people. Like that's something that I that I do, even if it's not explicit. It's it's something that I like really strive to do. And Danny is an example in our latest project, Game Brunch. I wrote that with Danny in mind, and so the character is is the half sister of the main character, who's played by Ricardo Manigat, who we collaborate with a lot. Mm-hmm. He's also part of Congested Cat and Indie Works in various ways, um, and he's black. And so like. I know that Danny wants to play a black woman in a film explicitly herself, like a biracial mm-hmm. woman, right? And that, that that's few and far between. And um, and so that's an area where I think if like you have actors that you love writing for them and with them in mind and including them, as Danny said, in that will will give you the authenticity that you're maybe looking for. Um I, I wanted to speak to that earlier, but I didn't want to come on this podcast and just stan Christina. <laughs> um, but I don't think I have ever like expressed to you how important that role was for me because you did write it with me in mind, and I know that you wanted to collaborate with people that you enjoy working with and who you knew would be great to work with on set and we would have a fun time, but truly having a role that represents so much of myself being a mixed character who's gay who's speaking to gay identity and and that conversation in that role it i've i've never seen anything like it for me i'm so honored to have been able to portray that for other people who feel the same way that I have my entire life. Um, so I just have to thank you because that meant the world to me. <laughs> well, I mean, prepare yourself for more roles like it. Um, yeah, and I think it's just like including people. I know that we're not just talking to filmmakers of color, we're talking to white filmmakers who maybe want to not just regurgitate the same stuff that they've seen made by white creators, but they want to do it responsibly. And I think that giving people decision-making power, giving them space to voice how they feel about the way something's written and bringing themselves to it is is really the way forward. And I'm yeah. maybe as as the resident white person, I was going to say, yeah, I add to it. <laughs> please, I would. I, my fellow white people, <laughs> give me your tired, your etc. Hands. Um, <laughs> so i think a big thing that y'all need to remember is that there is a difference between writing um characters from identities that you do not identify as and writing stories from their perspective and Mm -hmm. if you really want to see a story from a half south asian trinidadian person and you are a white person ask christina ray to do it and i think (laughs) and and also i think that there's this aversion particularly from white like writer director types because like that's sort of the auteur position that's the one where you're in charge of the story and I think that there is a resistance not just from white people but mostly from white people uh giving away any amount of like control or collaboration because then your your vision is diluted and it's not that you don't think that it could necessarily be really good but it's because like you're the writer director so you're the one writing the script but like collaborating having you know inclusive readers having sensitivity readers having other your actors inform the script process doesn't dilute your vision it makes it stronger because filmmaking is inherently collaborative and i hate the auteur style of filmmaking where it's like a singular vision i don't know Mm -hmm. why we're striving for that like write a book 
you know <laughs> if you're gonna make a film there's yeah. already gonna be tons of other perspectives it does not make your writing less you to include other perspectives because you can still have control over the macro and the plot and like you know individual lines of dialogue but if you actually want your work to be good and you want people to like working with you and you want to be a ethical empathetic interesting part of the creative ecosystem it can't just be about you it yeah. shouldn't just be about you so embrace that instead of resisting it I promise you're gonna get better at everything that you're doing when you let other people in so let people in yeah I want to add two things um, before we wrap up one is we didn't really talk about this at all and that's because I would say we all are privileged in this way we didn't talk about ability Mm -hmm. That is uh, an aspect of representation that is probably the farthest behind and yep. probably the most like people don't pay attention to, especially when it comes to casting and who takes roles. So I would just like to speak to that and just say that that's something that I want to be more aware of and in looking for content by diverse creators in, in that realm. Also, to what Brie was saying, if you don't know where to start, start with your collaborators that you surround yourself with if you are part of a writer's group is it all white writers that's a problem mm -hmm. either you know try and get some new members or go find a totally different one that is much more diverse or if you want to try and connect with more creators of color go to film festivals local film festivals that are specifically screening work by creators of color that will put you in the room with those people that you can connect with and learn from and as danny said diversify the content that you watch as much as possible. If you're looking for a place to start, you could start with Lovecraft Country. You yes. could watch I May Destroy You. You could watch Insecure. Yes. And going further off of Bree's point, if you search those hashtags on Twitter, you will become a part of that conversation. That's right. That's right. And read reviews by uh, people who are of that identity because... That will also, I mean, there's a huge problem in terms of film and TV and critics and whose voices matter most and who determines a Rotten Tomatoes score and those kinds of things. It's a lot of white men. Yeah, I personally will not read a critique or like review of a piece of media that is not by a person from the identity that the mm -hmm. perspective is from. So like I, it, like I won't read a man's perspective on Campton Marvel, even if it's a positive one. I'm like, mm -hmm. I don't care what you think. I'm glad you liked it. Like, go sit mm -hmm. somewhere else. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, Danny, thank you so yeah, much for being you. here with us today. Thank you so much for having me. This was an awesome yeah. chat. Well, we will certainly have you on again, and we will certainly be talking about representation again <laughs> because it's there were there were parts of this that we'd prepped for that we didn't even get to because there's just there's so much. So mm -hmm. go in empathy, my friends. And uh, with that, Christina, you want to start our outro? Yeah. <laughs> Thanks so much to Kelsey Rauber for our theme music and Kaylee Brown for our podcast art and to all of you for listening. You can find more about Kelsey at KelseyRauber.com and more about Kaylee at KayleeChristina.com. Links, as always, are in our episode description. And remember to subscribe to our podcast so you get notified of all our new episodes dropping every other Thursday and to rate us five stars if you haven't already. Quick update. Date. We decided to take November off from releasing episodes so that we could process the election results and figure out what kind of a world we're going to be living and creating in for the next four years. So on that note, please, please, please make sure that you vote either before or on November 3rd. And we'll be back in December. Next episode, we will be covering what's in your wallet. So be sure to tune in.